0: Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. And on this week's New Statesman podcast, the terrifying first days of Trump. You ask us, will there be a Brexit deal? Julia reveals this week's Backbencher of the Week.
1: And much, much more. Let's talk about Trump, Stephen. Okie dokie. Because I think it. what I've seen since um, the Orange Cheeto took office is the vindication of your, your kind of line before we came in, which was, you know... He is going to be as bad as you think he is. Like, don't. What? What about his campaign gave you any hope that he'd turn into kind of Ronald Reagan the minute he entered office? Um, I watched the inauguration speech from Spain, where I was on holiday, which is which was very nice. Um, and it was. I mean, it was a terrible, terrible speech, just on a fundamental structural level. But it was. It, I thought it contrasted very poorly with former Republican speeches. Someone put a mash-up together, all of them, who talk about the kind of world order and America take its place on the world stage. There was none of that in there at all.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I think... So I didn't watch the speech live because I I take the view that Trump gave a pretty clear idea of the kind of person he was in his campaign and indeed in his the last decade uh, and the way he's run his businesses or rather not misran his businesses and during his time as president-elect. Um, I didn't think it was going to be great oratory. I felt I could read it in t- in 10 seconds afterwards and be horrified by it like that without having to listen to his awful grating voice. And I feel validated by that decision. Yeah, that was another great decision for uh, you. I think the... I think there have been two interesting separate sources of kind of Trump denialism, right? There are people on the centre-right who have like this done, oh, you whining liberals, blah, 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 Trump's going to be great, oh, you all hate every American president, who think it's going to be like Reagan. And then there's some people on the left who regard American hegemony as innately bad, who have kind of gone like, oh, well, it's same old, same old. I find i'm more in sympathy with the the second view although i think what those people are already realizing is not liking a hegemon which behaves via rules and is predictable and is a rational actor is a whole different order of terrifying to a hegemon which is not led by a rational actor does not observe
1: mm. uh,
0: any rules and also doesn't even have a kind of coherent sense of what its own self-interest is.
1: I think that's the thing that's becomes very difficult to deal with is the fact that, that I don't really know what Trumpism is beyond talking aggressively about kind of, you know, we're going to bring jobs home and being a bit sympathetic to Putin. It's very, it's quite difficult for to predict where it's going to go in the sense of, you know, actually, because you, you, you can't ever believe anything that he says, right? Because yeah. he will then say the same thing. So, um, you know, Ted Cruz is taking the opportunity to say that the US should pull out of the UN, right? And they're trying to push that. I actually don't know what which way Trump will go on that, right? And you also kind of feel like if, you know, Ban Ki-moon was mean to him at 9pm, he might tweet at 9.30 that actually is pulling the uh, the US out of the the UN.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the... there. I mean, there have been so many terrifying things about the last five days uh, as we record this, although you will be listening to it on day six, seven, I think. Um, there have been so many terrifying moments and I already have lost count of them. But one of the, the more troubling ones is the way that his White House is already link- leaking things that we kind of knew, which isn't... He's incredibly vain. He's obsessed with the fact that his the, the inauguration crowds weren't as large as they were for Obama's. He the-
1: watches cable TV. I mean, I haven't got time to watch 24-hour news, you know, and I'm you know I'm not president of the u.s i mean
0: i am firmly on team cable tv as far as trump is concerned right because there are basically three bad ways trump's presidency can go there's like the the like going around nicking as much stuff leveraging the u.s state for money and eroding democratic institutions at home
1: Mm -hmm.
0: i'm sorry this is a really selfish sentence but i don't live in the united states And that is the best case scenario that I can see at this current point in time. Because actually the terrifying thing is, oh, where is your God now, Helen? Elizabeth Warren voted to confirm Ben Codson at...
1: Ben Carson in housing?
0: Yeah. But
1: I feel I feel let down by Elizabeth Warren, but I still like her folksy charm, so I'm gonna forgive her this one. I think only Karen Gillibrand was the only one to vote against all of Trump's appointments.
0: Yep, yeah, uh, Gillibrand is, is she uh so she voted for one of them, uh Nikki Haley who is the UN ambassador. I don't agree with Nikki Haley, but she is the only one who I would...
1: Mad Dog Mattis, Ma- ironically, Mattis. is turning out to be, you know, the closest sane adjacent of, of all of them, right?
0: Well, I feel like Mattis is the, is the only... Is, is, yeah, like, is, yeah, is, is, is perfectly sane, rules-based, et etc. et cetera, all the things I kind of said at the beginning. The issue with Mattis is that it does break the norm about not having someone go straight from the military yeah. to the civilian branch at this point i'm not unsympathetic to, to
1: yeah know, i'm i, I yeah. just feel like uh, do you know what we're in such a, we're in so far deep into crazyville that that's i'm just it's a really interesting situation isn't it because you mentioned the fact that there's been so many mad things like let's go through and see if we can even remember all the mad things so first of all there has been the defunding of any foreign organisation which uh, will even sort of talk about abortion to people or provide any kind of abortion services.
0: Even if the thing that the US is funding them is like building malaria nets.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, that's every um, GOP president since Reagan has signed that executive order. Every Democrat has unsigned it. Except this
0: one is worse because the old GOP ones uh, only were. So let's say that I am, I'm a big development organisation. I'm Oxfam and I... I do help uh, women secure abortions, but the funding for my U.S. programs is for malaria nets. I still get that funding under the old gag rules. Under the new one, I not only uh, don't get any U.S. funding if I for a program in which I am o- offering people access to reproductive services, I also don't get any funding for any of my other programs. So it is much more far-reaching.
1: Okay, so there's that. That's I, I give that kind of... Seven out of ten on the horror scale. I mean, we're going to have to use the full... I mean, we're going to be heavily concentrated at the top end of the mark, so let's not blow our gasket too soon. Um... No climate data is to be given out, right? I think this is something that someone pointed out on Twitter, which I thought I hadn't really thought about. You know, we're talking about them getting very cross and lying about the crowd sizes and sending out the press secretary, Sean Spicer, to say, no, 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 the crowds went as far back as the monument. They were incredible. If they'll lie about something that is, there is a photo that proves them wrong that you can look at then we're about to realise quite how much you rely on government statistics. And, you know, this is something that's true in the UK as well, is that, you know, you have crime statistics collected by the government, you have climate statistics collected by the government. Until now, researchers have relied on that data. Journalists have relied on that data. And if that stuff is, is not reliable anymore that's a problem and if that stuff is no longer allowed to be publicized like the national park service twitter feeds getting told off for tweeting and like suspended right for for tweeting um climate change stuff someone pointed out that nasa's climate change account hasn't tweeted since the 19th of january yeah um so that's i'm gonna give that i mean it's i'm gonna give that seven as well because that's kind of low key what horror. are you
0: saving eight nine ten for <laughs>
1: yeah. um tweeting about the fact that chicago might need martial law right i didn't that wasn't
0: no that wasn't a, that wasn't I a nightmare that was that he did happened. say
1: it's there's been loads of crime there i might have to send in the feds yep that's i'm giving that an 8 i'm giving that a solid 8 okay what else have you got
0: um so what else has he done um oh there was a there was another lie this time about the scale of his electoral college win one of the closest ever it, it 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 wasn't
1: oh he's gone nuts about the fact that he thinks that several million people voted illegally but he's also very sure they voted legally for clinton so obviously we don't need to rerun the election
0: and conveniently in california i mean i just feel if i was going to commit electoral fraud and i was a democrat i would have done it in a swing state i would have done it
1: in wisconsin uh,
0: yeah but um but uh but yeah which obviously is pitch rolling for again to you know, to say something and I said, and every, I'm just going to call people out on this. Every time I said this on the podcast, one of you, I'm pointing angry at the microphones, we go like, Stephen, I think you're being a bit hysterical. I said there was a, v- a fairly good chance in 2016 would be the last Democratic presidential election, small d. Uh, although, obviously, the last Democratic, as they did win the popular vote again, uh... And what are they doing? It's pitch rolling for going, oh, to tackle this problem of voter fraud, in heavy inverted mm-hmm. commas, we will have a variety of things which will make it harder for black people, poor people, other... Hispanics. Hispanics other groups which trend towards the Democrats to vote. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, this is a man who is refusing to accept the idea that his electoral college vote was not small, right? Yeah, you know, he's willing to, will, not willing to accept the result of an election he won. What do we think is going to happen? And this is going to be four years in which they will have found excuses to fire a lot of people. And some people have gone, do you know what? Screw it. I'm just going to take a lot of money and take a public service, public private sector consultancy job.
1: I think the thing I'm really interested to know is how the Democratic Party responds to that. Because it's an interesting question about, there was a great tweet. I can't remember it was, maybe it was like Mitch McConnell or someone saying like, you know, we want the same, we want the Democrats to show the same level of cooperation that we did over Obama's appointments. And you were like, is he self sassing or not because you know they wouldn't you know they wouldn't accept obama's final supreme court nominee right they just kept that until the, the after the presidential election the hope that a republican would win and then trump could make the appointment and that would swing the balance of the court and all kinds of things but if you're a democrat the trouble is there is a huge incentive in that system now towards just relentless partisanship. there is no reward at all for any kind of bipartisan um, uh, attempts which you know the the republicans in uh, under obama ruthlessly just they wouldn't even incredibly sensible things they just screamed and shouted their feet and stamped their feet so i don't know what's going to happen now
0: well i think that's the interesting thing about kirsten gillibrand right she and cory brooker which i am more surprised by is the uh, democratic senator from the right of that party from new jersey oh, I said Karen
1: gillibrand earlier didn't i sorry yeah
0: it's fine uh they have both, I think, realised where the mood of the democratic base is. Uh, and I think some people, including, I mean, you know, Bernie saying he will do a deal well, on trade with with Trump, I think, I think some people in the Democratic Party from right to left uh, have just misunderstood where the democratic base is. And I also think the difficulty is the Democrats have an incentive in government working, right? So the costs of obstructionism to them are higher. However, I think what they haven't realized is the scale of how bad Trump is and therefore how important it is that it is a failure. And there actually isn't anything to be gained for the Democrats on going, oh, maybe we'll work with them on a stimulus bill here or a a whatever bill here, etc., etc., Well, just
1: finally, um, Theresa May is off to Washington. She has a huge interest in getting a trade deal. I mean, the big headlines from Michael Gove's interview were all like, yeah, definitely, it's going to be okay post-Brexit. There's a big interest in the Brexity newspapers and Brexity politicians in talking up the idea that Donald Trump will smile sweetly at us in our future out into the world, you know, sunlit uplands. How well do you think that's going to go?
0: I mean, it's going to go pretty badly, isn't it? I mean...
1: I can't... The photo is going to be chronic. I mean, have you ever seen a woman who looks less impressed with giant grandstanding men than Theresa May? I mean, she's got a lot of experience. She's not going to be doing the thumbs up.
0: I think the prediction you can take to the bank is what will happen is, because he's suggestible to whoever he was last in the room with, right, and actually one of the things Trump is very good at is that he has successfully co-opted most of the politicians he has defeated in some way, actually surprisingly two people who i wouldn't necessarily have expected not to uh, fall into this pattern have been hillary clinton and harry reid uh he but he is good at both well he one he's he's very suggestible so i would expect that on friday he will say everything that the brexiteers and downing street want him he will say something like yeah we've got a lot in common in terms of trade we've got a lot of special relationship special relationship the magic
1: words churchill and special relationship and a lot of people go weak at the knees
0: and everyone will go, oh, it's great. Look, what what a success uh, this is. I mean, I agree with Ian Martin, himself a Brexiteer on this. Trump has fundamentally changed what the foreign policy question for Britain is after Brexit. It is no longer really about trade or any of that kind of thing, although obviously those are still, you know, bread and butter issues. Trump raises a much more important question about being secure in Europe um, and what that means and what those challenges are. And yeah, but I mean, I also think that when when the rhetoric about this Trump deal will only really be exposed after we've left in twenty nineteen, when obviously many other things, which I imagine we'll get we'll get to in part two of this week's podcast, uh, may have started to come unravelled as well. But the the big issues in a US trade deal, regardless of who the president are, is, are access to our public services and what you can put. In, in livestock, right? That's not going to change. Trump believes that everywhere. Oh, you US... mean in
1: terms of pharmaceuticals rather than in terms of body parts? Sorry, yeah. I'm, I'm still stuck on David Cameron. Um, yeah, I uh, know. I yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Uh, well, T tip is over, Stephen. Surely the left rejoices. No, let's not get let's not get into T tip. Oh. No one has time for T tip now. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll revisit this in part two.
0: And now, Julia Rampen joins us to tell us who her Backbencher of the Week is.
2: Hello. And uh, yeah, this week, I think it has to go to David Lammy. Because although quite a few Labour MPs are now talking about voting against Article 50, I give credit where it's due. He's been talking about that since June.
1: He's an Article 50 hipster.
2: Is yeah. What saying. yeah. Yeah, he was there before it became fashionable, writing his op-eds for us. Him, which I presume, because he's Tottenham
1: MP, right? So yeah. his constituency pretty remainy,
0: hugely remainy. Um, he also gains a ward from Hornsey and Wood Green, which uh, is super remainy. Yeah, kind of. You know the heart of Romania. Yeah, you know, full disclosure. Yeah, you know, I, yeah, you know, David Lammy and I really, well, actually, not my manner anymore, but David Lammy and I uh, have known each other from before I was, you know, a political journalist. Not least because for a long time when I worked in a shop, he and I would take the same bus home from from Westminster. Uh, that's, and
1: that's a nice story. Um, yeah. He's one of a, quite a few high profile Labour MPs. We don't have an exact number yet for the number who won't vote to trigger Article Fifty, do we? But um, Stephen, you wrote in your column this week that Tulip.
0: Tulip Sadiq And
1: um, Catherine West
0: Catherine West Catherine West is kind of probably The most significant name so far Because she's the MP for Hornsey and Wood Green uh, Obviously fairly remain heavy But she supported him both in 2015 and 2016 So this is the big issue, right? There was some confusion About whether or not there would be a three-line whip Because he said he would ask MPs Corbin. Corbyn, Corbyn to, to vote for him Which is obviously the official way that you 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 do that Their line is they don't comment on whipping matters, but some big-name supporters of Jeremy's on Twitter kind of went, oh, I'm sure that can't be true. The difficulty is he obviously, he might have a three-line whip technically, but he can't replace Catherine West, Tulip Sadiq, Daniel Zeekner, the mp for Cambridge also on the front bench, all of whom have said they will vote uh, against uh, triggering Article 50. So it'll
1: be a three-line whip, but if they break the three-line whip, there'll be no... Sanctions. What you've missed, Julia, is this is the week of people realising that lots of things that we thought were actual rules are more like kind of guidelines because they're just observed by convention. But um, why, why else do you pick David Lammy?
2: Um, I think he has been the most coherent about this idea of arguing in Parliament. Um, so from the very beginning, he spotted that this really should be a debate for Parliament. And he also spotted the opportunity to block Brexit as we know it through parliament so I suppose he's a good way of talking as well about all the other MPs who aren't Labour and who are planning a much more um full frontal attack on
1: might you be talking about the SNP yeah
2: yeah yeah, let's start with them go on what are are those bunch of lads up to now um well I met quite a few of them last night and um, in a very well-disciplined way they went around and said hello to everyone and, and basically delivered the same message. Is this message. a Burns Night supper by Funnily any chance? Funny enough it wasn't. It wasn't like an Article 50 supper either but it just happened to be on the same day. But basically the message was pretty clear. In fact it was only took 10 minutes or so after the Supreme Court ruling to hear from them that they were going to have 50 amendments. Um, so I think their plan is, you know, death by a thousand amendments as far as Brexit's concerned. Um,
1: what happened um, in PMQs about the idea about publishing a white paper, Stephen? I missed that.
0: So uh, Chris Philip uh, answered, oh, so great service on, on Twitter that's going on. Isabel Hardman is compiling a burn book of like oleaginous questions where, you know, you know where backbenchers stand up and go, would the prime minister agree with me that she is the best prime minister there's ever been? Um, and he basically kind of went, are you going to publish a white paper? And she was like, why? What a great idea. And then, I mean, obviously, one of the reasons why PMQ, I mean, there are many reasons why I hate PMQs, most of which precede Jeremy Corbyn or Theresa May. But one of the reasons why it's become even worse is neither of them can exactly think on their feet. So he then had this thing where he'd obviously planned to ask her about the white paper first. He then basically went, well, what when, yeah, what time will this where thing you have already <laughs> what, committed what to publish <laughs> yeah. um, be? But he actually did, I think, um, although she batted it, it back in the chamber, he has spotted an area of intense vulnerability for her, which is the nitty gritty of these trade deals. He was like, look, can you commit that n- it won't open up the NHS to US multinationals? Obviously, she doesn't want to say something either way. But there are going to be big issues with every trade deal that we sign about the health service, about food, about visas and we forget and the government only has a majority of six, right? And on any one of these issues, sorry, 12, 11, uh, 11, because know, Zach Goldsmith has gone. I
1: just thought, hang on a minute, what? Did I, did I miss another five biting the dust at some point? Although by elections they might get a few yeah. more. Yeah, yeah, I know you're right. They're much more vulnerable than they look, le- which is again is, is is why no one apart from Theresa May can believe that she's not she's not desperate to hold an early election because she could if the polls are correct, to be sitting on a very fat majority indeed. Um, what kind of award should we give David Lammy? I feel like we should, give an, we should offer some sort of award. You could have another... Uh, maybe David Lammy, if you'd like to call in, you could have a commemorative, nostalgia-filled bus ride with Stephen for old time's sake. That could be your reward for winning this prize. Okay. Thanks for joining us, Julia. And now for a section called You Ask Us. OK, so the thing is, I didn't realise my original motivation for You Ask Us was a riff on the Manic Street Preacher song, You Love Us. I
0: thought the original motivation for You Ask Us was to have a regular feature where we could rely on our listeners to provide us with content because we were too lazy to do so ourselves.
1: That too. But my my inspiration for originally, obviously it's changed now to me just barking, but um, I think that there are probably other Manic Street Preacher songs that we could adapt to be uh, useful, or indeed, user-generated content. we
0: could adapt the actual Manic Street Preachers songs you thought you were adapting. <laughs> uh,
1: what? I thought it makes sense. You, you ask us, you ask us, oh, you ask us. See, it works.
0: I mean, to us, the only Manic Street Pe- Preachers song I can really identify is their cover of Umbrella.
1: Oh, my God. Sometimes I forget that you're, like, 12. Anyway, um, what have people been asking you this week?
0: Um, mainly they asking us, will there be a deal?
1: So there's a whole thing going on. So the Lib Dems, I think, have got a, have come up with... and They've ended up in a place where they've got a strong line about the fact they're not defying the will of the people. What they want is a vote on the terms of a deal to exit, um, which is, seems to be doing pretty well for them, um, electorally. Um, do you think this is the right way to do it? Do you think triggering Article 50 and then starting that two-year process is going to result in us getting a deal?
0: I mean... No, I don't. Article 50 is one of the fun things about our Brexit debate, right? I mean, yeah, I found that one of the easiest votes I've ever cast to stay in. But a lot of the decisions for it are are interesting because you can kind of see how they work both ways, right? So there is a very strong argument to leave that one reason why the EU is a terrible institution is because Article 50 is basically makes it so hard for the country which is leaving not to get an absolutely terrible deal. And the incentives it creates are so powerful in in terms of it being a good idea to stay in, and obviously that offends a sense of natural justice, etc., etc. And, you know, theoretically, that's quite a good argument. I mean, the flip side of that is that all is true, and it's probably why it wasn't a good idea to vote to leave, because you just it's it's impossible as far as I can tell to work out how any organization, you know, even the most efficient, well-run international organization to agree something as complex as Britain's disentanglement from the EU in two years, right? It, it's just very difficult. So the kind of the three parts in the commission timetable are basically divorce. So all of the stuff that we've already said we'll pay for and the final bill for that, then kind of, Exit, so wider disentanglement, so things like assets, uh, and then the kind of immediate uh, transition deal, and then kind of finality, right, the final trade deal that will shape our relationship with the EU for years to come.
1: um, Sorry, my question about it is I think there might be a lot of things that happen that get very little scrutiny because they're very complicated and quite tedious that, then become huge landmines when people actually realise what they mean, like regulation of medicines and stuff like that, right? It's something that sounds snoozerific, but actually in two or three years' time, people are going to be going, what? We said what? We agreed what? Which you know, quite mean, of
0: a minister agreed this. You, you realise when you say snoozerific, you mean my whole plan for the August month when I have no actual news but I am still required contractually to write something occasionally. Yeah. Just, just like every day to be like, here's another thing you haven't thought of. The other fun thing is divorce, right? So let's say that you are married to an Italian and you both live in Spain and at the moment if you get divorced all of your rights—that that is really easy and obviously it's hugely non-controversial that those things will remain the same after Brexit. However, at some point everyone does have to agree though, though You know, those are things which have to be agreed. They are so small bore in terms of the Mm. economic consequences. It's very easy to see how they just get forgotten or they get shunted to the sidelines. And we only kind of that only becomes an issue when, you know, in 2021, someone gets divorced and goes, hey, wait a second, what happened to all of my rights?
1: The thing I I and I'm, I reserve the right to update this opinion when I thought more about it, but I do feel that what we should have done is gone to an off-the-shelf existing arrangement, like an EEA arrangement, right, as a transitional step, that so that you know we everything was kind of as close as it possibly could have been previously, but we'd taken the decisive step out, and from there you could then dismantle anything you wanted to. Now I understand totally politically why. That was that would have been a very controversial thing to do. But I feel like actually for the long term interests of the country, that would have both respected our the you know, the mandate you have to leave and not plunged us into an ongoing year's long, you know, bun fight, basically.
0: All right, so I honestly don't know. So I'm gonna do one of those maddening things that listeners always tell me they love where I go on a very long rambling thing. So on the one hand, yes obviously it, it it keeps the technical mandate but the thing is the EEA is a bit democratically dodgy anyway isn't it i mean it it is basically a deal given to norway when their political establishment tried and failed to win a referendum to take them into the eu and they were basically all right okay so here's like a structure which is a bit like that but it's different yeah, it's the i can't believe it's not the eu membership i think the difficulty is although it was very close and although i am highly dubious than people who say i'm willing to get poorer to reduce immigration mean a word of it you can't be 52 48 out of a trade block you either pull your sovereignty or you don't you don't you either are involved in a trade deal or you're not so i think it is quite difficult to have a non-economically disastrous brexit that doesn't violate democratic norms it's one of the reasons why i was always very skeptical of the liberal lever uh, argument that, oh, you'll just go into the EEA um, because the EEA is being an EU member but without any power uh, it and the EEA was designed to be to be that. You know, kind of Switzerland's arrangement, I think, would violate democratic norms. I But I, here's
1: the thing I've been trying to understand. I've been trying to understand, you know when people get very het up about leaving the EU, what is the thing that has to have happened for us to have left the EU, right? Because I can see that for Aaron Banks and for Nigel Farage and people like that, Controlling immigration is the thing. But the sort of, uh, you know, what is the thing that, like Dominic Cummings and Robert Oxley and all the kind of vote leave guys, what is the thing that has to happen for them to be satisfied that we've left the EU? What's the kind of quiddity of the EU? I think.
0: So I think there's a couple of things. I would
1: ask one of them, but we know that Dominic Cummings would write a like a ninety thousand word blog post that was just all about boo you know, Boolean logic.
0: Well I think some of it was the Michael Gove uh leadership platform, lots of spending in science, innovation, you know, people coming from you know all over the world, skilled immigration, all of that noise. The difficulty and in some ways the kind of the column I never work out what the next five hundred words of it are is The referendum was about Cameron, not just because he's the reason why we had the blasted thing, but because for a lot of Tories on the right of the party, they have this idea that you leave the EU and suddenly it unlocks lots of things that are politically difficult, right? But actually, even if you are in the EU, so even if you're outside of the EU, People don't want to be like Singapore, not least because Singapore has a smaller financial services sector than we do um, and has far fewer people. You just cannot support uh, a UK style a European style welfare state which is what we've basically always had
1: and which people uh, really like and people let's are, be honest yeah. you can't take away people's social security without them getting really you can't like things that people see in their lives they notice when you take that away Yeah. do you know what when you last mentioned us being like Singapore but with better weather someone wrote in from Singapore to complain that actually the humidity there is very unpleasant and we shouldn't stop saying that so you're allowed to say next time we have to say Singapore but with more humidity
0: Okay, fine. Singapore, Britain, but with less humidity. I don't know. I mean, to be honest, I, I'm, I'm fine with humidity. I'm, I'm cold right now.
1: Okay, well, on that bombshell, <laughs> um, we'll come back next week.
0: Thank you for listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, my co-host, Helen Lewis. The music is by the underscore orchestra, Devil with the Devil, licensed by Creative Commons. Next week, we'll be discussing the continuing horror of the Trump presidency, as well as anything you want to ask us. But if you like the NS podcast, please do subscribe on iTunes, leave a review. Uh, If you don't like it, keep it to yourself.